Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. This is Monday Morning Critic Podcast. I am beyond thrilled that you're listening today. Um, today's guest is cinematographer Stuart Dryberg. Stuart has a lengthy filmography. I'm just going to read a handful of his movies that really moved me, um, especially the first three. Uh, the first one being The Upside, starring Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. Must see if you have it, by the way. Uh, Gifted, starring Chris Evans. Must see if you have him, by the way. Uh, Gifted might be... Um, the most underrated movie in the last 10 to 15 years, certainly in that ballpark, top five underrated in the, in the last 10, 15 years for sure. Uh, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, the Ben Stiller directed film, fantastic. The Great Wall starring Matt Damon, uh, Boardwalk Empire, Luck, um, and of course The Piano, for which Stewart was nominated for an Academy Award for Cinematography. Um, Stewart's vision is just breathtaking. Um, I Just for proof, Rewatch The Secret Life of Walter Mitty or watch it for the first time if you haven't already. I can assure you the scenes in that movie will take your breath away. There's a scene in Gifted, which we will get to um, in the interview, that is one of the best scenes I've seen in a movie. Um, absolutely blew me away. And to hear that that scene was ad-libbed and shot with very, very limited time um, is just it is mind-blowing. So I am very psyched for you to hear the conversation I had with Stuart what a nice human being. What a, He's beyond talented. I mean, his talent speaks for itself. But it's always nice when somebody who's supremely talented, um, when you meet them as a human being and have a conversation and they're equally as awesome in that regard, that's just such a wonderful way to have an interview. It's just, it doesn't always happen. Happens a lot. I, I, can't, I can't name very many interviews I had that I had regret or um, that I regret having the guest on the show. Um, I certainly regret not asking guests some questions that I think about afterwards, but I can't tell you a guest that I've had on the show that I regret asking, right? Because I only ask people that really, uh, truly move me. But I, I'm very excited for you to hear this interview. Before I get into it, going to make this very short. Um, there's a couple of things in the world of movies slash TV that I want to talk about. The first of which is Cobra Kai. It's taken me three years to get here, um, and there's certainly a reason for that. Um, the reason is is that when it first came out, the first four episodes were free, and those were great. And they, they you, Cobra Kai, for those of you that are new to to this, didn't start off on Netflix. It started off on YouTube Premium, right? You'd pay a certain amount of months to get to watch Cobra Kai. But the problem with that is there was nothing else to watch on YouTube. You're paying for one show, so YouTube Premium was not worth it. Okay, and before I get into Cobra Kai briefly, <clears throat> for those of you that are ever in cable box and are looking to get out of cable, I cannot recommend YouTube TV enough. That's much different than YouTube Premium, for which Cobra Kai started. Okay, YouTube TV is what you do is you would pay for your Wi-Fi through your cable company, then get an Apple TV or there's other ways to do it, and then. You would buy YouTube TV per month. It's, it's got all the channels. It's got everything you need. right? It doesn't have the premiums, but it's got a lot of good stuff on it. So between all of that, you know, I saved a ton on my cable bill. I got rid of that bulky cable box that was just horrendous. And I've had YouTube TV for, for a couple of years now. I'm really happy that I have it. Um, but not to get lost in my point here, um, Cobra Kai started off on YouTube Premium which is something completely different, and it just wasn't worth it. So long story short, Netflix buys the rights to Cobra Kai, and here I am finally getting around to seeing it. 
Um, I have met um, William Zapka and Ralph Macchio um, at many Comic-Cons. I used to cover Comic-Cons in the normal world without the pandemic, and I will again. But, you know, I'd go to Seattle. I'd go all around the country, and I was lucky enough to meet them. I cannot tell you how kind William Zapka is. Um, Ralph Macho really didn't talk to all that much, but I've had a few, if not many, conversations with William Zapka. I absolutely love him, and he is a shining star in the show. Um, the fact, I don't, I don't know, I haven't looked back. If he hasn't been nominated for an Emmy, that's a joke. Um, he is a shining star in this show, but I'm not going to give too much yet because I'm halfway through. I love the way they did season one. My goodness, the flashbacks to the original Karate Kid. Um, I do have a few problems with the show. Um, up to this point, but I'm going to tell you, boy, am I happy I started it. Um, season one, episodes three through, I want to say seven, not three, man, I'm going to say five through seven, five through eight. They just really tug on your heartstrings. I mean, I just, it's just such a really, really well done show. Um, shame on me for waiting so long to start it. I am psyched to be wrapping up season two and eventually starting season three. So it's not often that I am late to the dance when it comes to watching television shows or movies. So this is one of the rare, rare exceptions, and it won't happen very often. So very excited about Cobra Kai and how this ends up. And I'm going to do a full um, Monday Morning Critic Movie Loft breakdown of this. Uh, by the way, um, Monday Morning Critic Movie Loft, I haven't done in a little bit. Believe me, it's because I am stockpiled with guests. I have six, seven, eight interviews that are ready to be edited, ready to go. I haven't had a chance to do it, and I have two or three movies I want to go into. I want to go into Cobra Kai, so I'm definitely going to put that in overdrive, right? Um, yeah, so I try not to dilute um, my podcast with you know releasing two, three interviews a week. I feel like the people who do that need the downloads. They're trying to get you know drive up their reviews, drive up. Every- you know, I feel like if your content stands on it on its own, you only need to release one release one episode a week, and that's what I'm doing. I'm releasing one quality, solid episode each week, and hopefully, um, you guys are liking what I'm putting out there. So, um, Karate Kid was the first thing. Uh, sorry, Cobra Kai was the first thing. Um, the second of which is Your Honor, a show with Brian Cranston on Showtime. Let me tell you, this show gives me as much anxiety as Breaking Bad does. Um, I cannot begin to tell you. How Your Honor, and I think we I just we we just finished episode seven. There's three left. The anxiety that this show brings me, it's like I can feel my heart just pounding after at the end at the end of each episode. It is so worth a watch if you have Showtime. Not sure I would get Showtime just to watch this show, um, but if once it's done, um, get it for a month and wrap up those episodes. Totally worth it. The Walking Dead is around the corner. I believe it's coming out in February, which I am so psyched. I love The Walking Dead. It is one of my top three shows on television for sure, and I'm, I'm psyched that that's coming back again. Um, Paul Racy, he was a guest that was in Sound of Metal. He was on three or four episodes ago. A uh, lot of talk with Paul being nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Academy Award. Lots of talk, so I wish Paul all the best, and I hope he gets that. Um, and it's weird because I'm talking about Paul. Okay. Today's guest, Stuart Dryberg was nominated for an Academy Award. I did another interview tonight where the guest was nominated for an Academy Award. Um, so, I mean, I believe the podcast is making a difference. I believe people are listening. I believe people 
are appreciating the content and the level of guests I'm getting. But And I'm doing it honestly. I'm doing it the way you're supposed to be doing it. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that, that doing things the right way, doing things that are honorable, and, and having a podcast, you know, and bringing it to you from a place of sincerity, a place of passion, uh, a place of love, without taking shortcuts, without being deceitful in how I go about things. I'm proud of that. And I've done it since day one. And here I am five, six years later, still putting out a, a good product. And I'm proud of that. So I know I say that a lot, but I, I am proud of myself. A um, few more things before I let you go. Um, we talked about the movie loft. Uh, Mandalorian. I don't know if I touched on this at all. Absolutely loved the ending. And I don't want to get into too much of this because I do want to do, a, again, a, a movie loft on this. Um, I loved what they did. I had a little bit of an issue. Um, I would have loved to have seen um, Sebastian Stan, perhaps, as Luke Skywalker. I don't know how that would have worked. But, boy, um, that brought tears to my eyes. And it makes you wonder. How could they, and I'm not saying I didn't like the Rise of Skywalker. I'm not saying I didn't like The Last Jedi. I'm not saying I didn't like The Force Awakens. I loved all three. But you can make the case either way that they're both good and bad movies. Like I, I liked them. They were good. But how can The Mandalorian be this good that everyone's on the, on, on the pretty much? I mean, you still have your bitter Star Wars fans that would be completely bitter if, at the perfect story. So they're, they're bitter no matter what. But for the most part, I feel like all Star Wars fans are on the same page with this. Like, this is a really good show. They're doing everything we wanted in those first three movies. Whereas in those the movies that I just named, people go back and forth and they're still debating years later whether they're good or bad. And I just, why did Disney struggle to put out three huge movies when the Mandalorian is absolutely kicking ass and everyone's in pretty much agreement how wonderful and phenomenal this show is. How could they get the Mandalorian so right and have been so inconsistent on the three movies? It just doesn't make sense to me. Something is off. You know, I keep hearing about how great Kathleen Kennedy is and, and all this other stuff or was, but I, I don't get it. Like John Favreau and Dave Filoni take this uh, show the Mandalorian and just absolutely get it. They get what Star Wars fans wanted to see. They're they're satisfying the old generation, me, and bringing in the new generation of kids that are just getting into Star Wars, and they're hooking them in right away, just like Star Wars did with me. The Empire Strikes Back with me, and then you have your you know bandwagon jumpers that like Star Wars because um, everyone else does. And I can think of a few people that are like that, but we'll, we won't go there today. But the Mandalorian, just such a wonderful show. Um, there's so many great facets to it. Um, WandaVision, I am planning on starting. That is on Disney+. Plus. Uh, enjoy Disney+, Plus while you can, because that price will absolutely be skyrocketing. Um, they have some premium content coming out. Um, I just read where Captain America is coming back into the universe. I don't know how that's going to work, but that, that's a keep your eye on. I'm also watching a Tiger Woods documentary on HBO. It's two parts. It's kind of long. It's a combined three hours, I want to say. Part two came out today. Absolutely worth your time. HBO Max, if you can swing it, it's worth the money. Um, if I had to narrow my, my down to must-haves for streaming services, I'd go Netflix, and not in this order, Netflix, HBO Max, and Disney+. Plus. All must have and all worth it for sure. So the last thing before I get into the interview today is one of the things I do, I surround myself, I'm always reading, right? I'm always reading about television news. 
I, I, I read about film history, TV history. I, I am always reading. I'm always trying to, I mean, I think I know a lot to begin with, but I'm always trying to supplement that. I feel like, you know, the expression that you're, you're you know, you're always learning in life or becoming a lifelong learner is a positive thing. That's true. Um, you should always be learning, always be reading. No matter how much you think you know, you can always know more. And the people that are really good at their professions or whatever they do understand that concept. Like you never stop learning. You put yourself in a position where you're like a sponge and you're always trying to absorb. And I thought that I knew there was everything to know about one, the Shawshank Redemption, and two, the Green Mile specifically The Green Mile. I had no idea that The Green Mile, I know it was written by Stephen King, I had no idea it was based on a true story. It is based on a 14-year-old boy named George Stinney Jr. who was arrested for the murder of two girls. Um, To make a long story short, he was put to death in the electric chair at 14 years old. And if you watch The Green Mile, you, you see how brutal... John Coffey's execution is. Um, From what historians say, from what I've read in history, this same execution of this child, um, first of all, there was no trial. It was like this, this, you know, circus of a trial that was just a joke. Um, They found their person, whether he was innocent or guilty, had nothing to do with it. George was going to suffer the consequences. And I have to tell you, it is a heartbreaking story. Um, that he never received justice. It's even more heartbreaking when you read the details about how the execution went. And when you consider the fact that he's 14 years old, I, I will never watch the green mile the same again. And I watch it all the time, you know, probably once a month. But um, when, now when I see John Covey's execution, I know that it really happened to a 14 year old child who received no justice and there's just a lot of pain around this article. If you guys ever want to, his name is George Stinney Jr. Um, please read it when you can. It's just so heartbreaking. And I know many of you love The Green Mile, as do I. But when you read that it was based on a true story, it is just so heartbreaking. Um, and what he went through. And in the movie, when you watch John Coffey's execution, you see what he goes through. And you see some of the executions before John Coffey and how messy they were, how awful they were. Um, what could go wrong, what did go wrong. Um, pretty much all of that happened to George. If you believe what historians say and you believe what people that were there um, and, and had, a, had first account information of, of what went on, um, it's, 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 it's a tough, tough, tough um, story to process, right? But the fact that the Green Mile was based on a true story um, and a 14-year-old at that uh, breaks your heart and... Uh, if you if you are inclined to find out more information, his name is George Stinney Jr. Um, please feel free to take a look at that. Um, okay, so that is it. Um, if you want to get a hold of me on Monday Morning Critic, um, you can contact me on Twitter at MDM Critic. If you want to do Instagram, it's Monday Morning Critic. Facebook, it's Monday Morning Critic Podcast. My website is mmcpodcast.com. My email is mondaymorningcritic at gmail.com. Um, if you are listening to this on YouTube, I would so appreciate it if you chose to go with um, Audible. It's a free app. Apple Podcasts, free. Stitcher, free. Pandora, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Spotify. Um, I would appreciate all of those because um, at least I get credit for the listen, which is great. But 
All that being said, I hope I gave you some useful information. I hope you enjoy the interview. Um, Let's talk again really soon. Here is episode 216. Please welcome Stuart Dryberg. Stuart Dreiber is an Academy Award-nominated cinematographer whose filmography includes The Piano, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Gifted, The Upside, so many more. I am so lucky and fortunate to be speaking with him today. Stuart, welcome. Hi, thank you. So I have to say, you know, you know, I always like to kind of give people listening um, a glimpse of what somebody's life looked like growing up and as they were, you know, getting older, obviously. Um, you're born in the UK. You moved to New Zealand. Um Talk about that move. Was that something that occurred really early on, or was that something you did you spend some time in the UK before you came to New Zealand? Uh, I definitely remember, you know, being a child in the UK up until I was little, nearly nine years old. Wow. And then my family emigrated to New Zealand, and this was in the early 60s, and the, you, we did it on a ship, which was just the most amazing adventure for an you know, nearly nine-year-old boy. You know, we ran all over the ship and, you know, watched the crew throwing the rubbish over the back and the sharks coming up to feed on it. And, you know, I don't know, just everything. It was just like an amazing adventure. And we traveled literally halfway across the world, you know, from from England to New Zealand. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, your entire life, it kind of all starts, I mean, there's other things, you have a clear love for photography, but I feel like it really starts with this borrowed 16 millimeter camera I was reading about. I feel like that, is that a fair, I don't want to speak for you, but does your love of of, of photography kind of begin there? Is that where the ball starts rolling? Um, That was sort of quite late in my life. Uh, Well, no, there's... Well, there were two. <coughs> Sorry, uh, excuse me. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd taken that trip from England to New Zealand. I had my first camera, mm-hmm. little plastic Ilford Sporty Four, um, and I took my sort of first photographs on that trip. And you know, definitely enjoyed that. Um, and then through, I studied architecture, and we. Uh, we did a lot of black and white photography and darkroom work in that course as well. So I was definitely kind of uh, in there. Uh, the, the first time I picked up a 16mm camera was my friend Peter Brundle in Eastbourne, who was a photography enthusiast, had one. And we made a couple of crazy little, you know, films just with our fr- you know, group of friends on a Saturday afternoon. Mm. Um and we definitely, you know, definitely that was sort of, but I didn't, I didn't really catch the bug at that point. I went, oh yeah, okay, I like this. I know how to do this. But it wasn't until um, I was in my final year at uh, Auckland School of Architecture, and I decided to make a 16 mil film for my final year thesis, and borrowed uh, a Bolex from the School of Fine Arts across the way. And then I really, you know, then I, I that that had me. Then it then it had me. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a gradual process. And I should mention that your dad was an architect, right? He was indeed. Yeah, and I mean, I have to. Does does your dad ever see you become and and what are his thoughts on when when you really start to um, develop? You know, as you met, just told the story, the real passion for you know uh, cinematography, the whole idea of photography. That what is what is Dad's take on that? I imagine as an as an architect, he was he had to be somewhat supportive of that. Uh, 
he he was, although um, he he actually passed away quite young. He was sixty when he died in the mid eighties, and I hadn't. I don't think I'd even started shooting. I had been a lighting technician in the New Zealand film industry and a gaffer for for many years, uh, well, for 10 years, I guess. Um, and although he was pretty interested in that, I keep, I feel like he kept waiting for me to get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it is a bit of you know, a gypsy life and, you know, there's no continuity of work and, I don't think I don't think he really understood it, and and unfortunately he never lived long enough to see me, you know, step up and become a cinematographer and go on to have some success at that, which you know is a regret. But yeah, he would he would he would have understood that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and then you know there's there's a in that time span that we're talking about. Um, I think you drove a taxi for a little bit. Then you kind of come back and you've joked about it. Um, you, you've said join the circus, um, but yeah. but but I have to believe though, Stuart. You know, and, and I get what you're saying there. It's very funny, but I don't know. I just feel like it's such a leap of faith. I mean, I to me that's so impressive. I mean, for what you're ready to kind of you know, buckle up for and, and, and ready to endure. That takes a lot of, of, of passion, I suppose. I don't know if that's how you viewed it at the time, but very passionate, very, you have to be dedicated. You have to be in love with it. Is that part of it too? Or it was just on a whim. You're like, I, Oh no, I was definitely in love. With, I was in love with the movies for sure. And, you know, we had a, um, a repertory cinema in the town that we, we would, uh, often go to a Sunday night double feature of, you know, two Truffaut movies or two, um, you know, spaghetti westerns or classic horror movies. You know what I mean? There'd be, there'd always be something going on. And so we saw a lot of movies and loved the movies uh, and loved the magic of it. Um, but it wasn't until the mid to late 70s that there was anything resembling a film industry in New Zealand. Um, there, there were, there was television, um, and that was just starting to make serious drama. But again, it wasn't sort of, it didn't occur to me as a career path. Um, but then in the late, mid to late seventies, a couple of my friends started working in film and, uh, when the, you know, and then I made the the film at, at, at college uh, which really got me after that I wanted to be a filmmaker but I still didn't really know how to do it um, and then when I returned from Australia after six months driving a taxi in Sydney I just got the opportunity to be hired as like a PA driver runner on a small film project in Auckland and that was sort of my intro and and, and then it really was like running away and joining the circus because it was kind of a the filmmakers at that time there was no money in it um, they were all in it purely for the love of it, there were really a lot of ex-hippies mm. and um, so it was like getting swept up you know, oh, you know, are you unemployed, interested and therefore available come with us, you know mm. I'm going, yeah, absolutely, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm up for this adventure <laughs> uh, you know, it really was a bit like that and then I, you know I had originally thought I would be wanted to be an editor because when I shot the film in college, um, 
a friend of mine who was a trainee editor in at the National Film Unit in Wellington helped me cut the film and, and turn this rather disorganized pile of footage into a story. And I thought this was pretty magical. But once I got on the set with all these lovely, crazy people, um, that's what I really knew. That I, yeah, there was no way I was going to sit in a room and, and cut film after that. I was going to be on set and I had to find my place in that world. And initially that was, you know, in lighting and, and that led to cinematography. You just touched on my next question. I was going to say, I don't know if you saw it then, but you seem to have, you seem to have um, a, a lot of training in lighting. And I feel like that's just vital for a cinematographer, for those listening. Um, would you agree with that statement? And did you see it as it was happening? Or is this absolutely. more? Absolutely. Okay. No, absolutely. No, I totally. I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but absolutely. Um, once I... Um, you know, uh, found myself on this small film. One of the, the 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 assignments that they gave me was to help the gaffer, who didn't have any crew. So I was, you know, like when I wasn't driving the van back to the office to pick up spare coffee and toilet rolls, I would be helping the gaffer run lights and cables and cut gels. And I got like a real, real basic sort of minimal understanding of what that would be, and then. After that project, um, I got hired by people who were making TV commercials. Um, again, there was so little crew in Auckland at that point. They would literally, the cameramen, who were the only people who really knew any of the technical stuff, would you know, say, okay, well, you're the gaffer. Okay, well, this is what you do. This is a light. This is this kind of light. This is how you point it. This is how you trim it. Uh, and so I got this amazing on-the-job training. Uh, and uh, it really was the most extraordinary opportunity. Um, one I don't think that could be duplicated, you know, outside of that specific place and time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things that I've been dying to ask you since we've been talking is, um, you know, film, <coughs> your take versus uh, film. Um, film versus digital. Um, you know, I look at a filmmaker like Christopher Nolan, who is very passionate about film. I mean, there's stories about him asking Steven Soderbergh to stop making digital. You know, start using. You know, continue using film. What is your take as a right. cinematographer on that? On that, I don't want to call it an issue, but on that, I guess I call it an issue for the question. But what's your take on uh, uh, film versus digital? Um, I mean, I, you know, obviously I, I grew up with film and I trained in film and I had my, you know, big chunk of my career shooting uh, movies on film. And um, I was not in a rush to adopt digital. I really wasn't. I was going, I'll, you know, I'll keep working with film as well. You know, partly because the I thought that the early... Um, the, what was HD in the early days of, of, of uh, film, digital film? It wasn't really digital. It was HD. It was analog HD, or digital. I guess it was digital, but it wasn't the sort of high resolution digital photography we have now. And I wasn't that impressed. And I wasn't that impressed with some of the results I saw. You know, I, I went and played with the cameras at the rental houses, and I wasn't that impressed with the movies. Um, you know, as, as you know, I, 
that I saw made that way um, until the Ari Alexa came along, and um, I did uh, I did a pilot for Michael Mann uh, for a show called Luck, mm. and when we made the pilot. Um, and I don't remember the year, but it was like 2010, 2011, something like that. Yep. The uh, the first Alexas had come out, but they really weren't available. Uh, and neither neither Michael or myself, who, you know, Michael you know, was a real early adopter of, of digital technology. Yep. Um, and when I went into the meeting, I assumed he was going to tell me, and we're going to shoot on a Viper or a Red or whatever. Um but he said, no, you know, like we're, we're out of the track and it's hot light, you know, and bright skies and green hills and deep shadow in the grandstands. I think um, we should, we're probably going to shoot film. And, and we ran a lot of tests where we ran film versus a Sony uh, F35, I think was the state of the art camera at the time. And indeed, you know, film yielded a much better result, even when transferred into a digital, you know, digital medium. So we made the pilot on film. Um, six months later, he invited me to shoot a couple of episodes. By then, the Alexa had come online, and the, and the, and they were committed to shooting with the Alexa, and so I had a chance to, you know, try my hand at that, and. I like it. I like the way it looks. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, um, you know, con- have continued to. Um, I-, I then worked with Michael again on a film called Black Hat, where yep. we were doing a lot of um, night photography in Hong Kong, using a lot of available light. And while you can do that on film, um the digital cameras love the darkness. I mean, they really have such a great look, particularly, you know, in Hong Kong with all the neon lights and the wet streets. It was absolutely perfect for it. And um, and really from then on I was, you know, hooked on, the, uh, on, on that particular version of the digital photography. Although I then went on and made several films after that, um, on film, so you know, it's. I, I would, I would happily uh, shoot film. I would, I would even recommend film if I thought it was right for a project. I think it's still a very, very valid capture media, medium, and I understand why people like Nolan um, prefer it. And and a lot of a lot of actors, I, I'm told that Tom Cruise. Um, has the mission films I think I'm not sure about the latest one but up until very recently certainly they were all made on film because he feels that it's more flattering you know it looks his skin tone and his uh, everything looks better on film and yeah. there's definitely an argument to be made for that. Yeah, that's well said. I, I have two questions from what you just said. One, I feel like every cinematographer, Stuart, has their own style. Like, I know when I'm watching a Michael Mann film. Um, I know when I'm watching one of your films. I know when I'm watching a Roger Deakins film. I know when I'm watching Hoyt. I know when I'm watching a you know the late Conrad Hall. I know when I'm... I, am I being over yeah. the top there? Do you feel like every cinematographer has that feel to them? Or am I just trying to sound a lot smarter? Am I trying to make myself, make myself sound a lot smarter than I really am. Um, I mean, I, I think that there are trademark um, 
there are stylistic trademarks that you have. Uh, I mean, I know I have them. At the same time, um, I think we all we also treat every film project um, on its individual merits. Now, as you trying to find the the right style for the film. Um, more than bringing, you know, like superimposing your style onto right. whatever the project is. Right. But this, but having said that, I'm sure that there are things that that we maybe don't even recognise in ourselves that that we always do, and that you can start to find a thread in the way faces are lit and the way things are composed. I, I'm, I'm sure that's true, but. Yeah, um, and I actually try not to do that. It's I guess the simplest. Right, and and the second part of what you said earlier, you know, it's I've been a, a film fan like you growing up for a very long time. I want to say going on forty years now for me. Um, and I just wish I knew more cinematography. Like listening to you speak about the various film and cameras, and I know that, and we're going to get to it in a, in a moment. Um, Walter Mitty, you shot on an Aircam SP with LT camera with a Hawk V light lenses, and I should know all those terms, and I don't. And as like as a serious movie fan, as a cinephile, I feel like a dope that I don't know any of that. And I don't know. I as a cinematographer, should a movie fan know some of that, or is that just something that only a photographer or a, or a cinematographer or a DP would know? Because sometimes I feel foolish that I don't know these terms that I feel like are, should be common lingo for somebody who watches as many movies as I do. Um, I really, I, I definitely don't think it's necessary. I, uh, I always think if I'm. Watch if I'm thinking about how a movie is made while I'm watching it, it's probably not a very good movie and it hasn't got my attention. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. Mm. Um, however, however, if you are the kind of film fan who is interested in how it's done, then there's of course a wealth of great technical articles, magazines, books, you know, about that. But I think it's sort of, you know, I think, it, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that until I started making films myself, I was a big movie fan, but I didn't give it very much thought as to how it was done. Uh, I just knew how it made me feel. You know, when I came out of a, a really great movie on a Saturday night and, the you know, the, everything, the world just seemed brighter yes. and sharper and better and, you know... Uh, <laughs> Stuart, I, really I have to say well, on that point, and I, I'm, I'm just going to briefly say this because I'll forget. It's sure. that I feel like it's that feeling that is better than any drink or any drug, or it's the most euphoric feeling when you're walking out of a theater, and it, exactly as you just described. It's to me, it's it's the best outside of the birth of my daughter. It's the best feeling. I have ever experienced when you see that wonderful movie and it's, it almost puts you in another level of elation. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just, I was, no, no. it's such a beautiful way of what, what you just said. When you're chosen for either a project or a movie, you eventually get to a, a movie and, and you're hired. Is, is it always the director's choice? Are there other people involved? Because there's a couple of your projects I'm in completely in love with. I mean, I, I think all your work is fantastic. I was going to mention, you mentioned luck. Um, uh, a boardwalk empire is phenomenal. But as far as movies, is it always the director that chooses? Is it always, or is it? Are there other forces involved, producers, or how does that part of it work for you, Stuart? 
I mean, I would think definitely the the director is the is the key person, but and 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 it's interesting enough. I'm kind of guessing a little bit here, although I have a line producer in the family. Um, is that when when a film starts to come together and a director um, gets a green light to make his film and you know main actor has signed on, whatever, uh, and he then has to go and hire his key crew, and the, that is essentially the cinematographer, the design production designer, uh, the line producer if he's not already hired them. And the first assistant director. Now there is also, I mean, there are many other people, but to me, costume designer maybe. You know, those are the sort of key players. Mm. Uh, and he or she may already have a team that he, they've worked on several movies together, and they will. Those obviously will be their first call. But if that's not the case, and it often is um, the case, then. Uh, Often the you know the, the director's creative partner, often who is you know the producer that he work he or she works with, um, would would start you know helping them to put together a list of, of people, like maybe three or four or five cinematographers, three or four or five designers, you know, and then um, they might they'll reach out to those people, and if those people are available and interested. Interested, they send them a script. Uh, so this is typically where my first contact is. My agent says, "There's this film with this director. Uh, you're available. Are you interested? Would you like to read it?" I say yes. I get the script. I read it. I like it. Uh, then I say, "Yeah, it's great. I love it. Um, can we set up a meeting?" And that is usually, if it, preferably in person, but often these days on Skype. Um, I would then have a meeting with the director, which which has been sort of choreographed on my side by my agent and on his side by his production team. Does that, I mean, that sounds like a slightly cumbersome way of explaining it all, but that is essentially what happens. No, it's very, so yeah. It, it's, it's a process, you know, and it, it's, um, you know, it's very rarely, I think, uh, you know, obviously when people have those set relationships like uh, Roger Deakins with the Coen brothers, for example, or more recently with uh, Villeneuve, um, you know, then that's a no-brainer. They just go, yeah, let's, you know, as long as their creative partner hasn't taken another job, that's who, who they're going to work with. But... Um, and, 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 of course, different directors and different director-producer teams will have different lists with different, you know, kind of sensibilities and based on the movies they like, based on people they've met, people or even recommendations. You know, sometimes I've been hired on movies on the recommendation of the line producer. Right. Um you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the the director says, "Oh no, I don't know this guy." So, oh no, well we did a movie with him, and he's terrific, and he's very, you know, I mean, I, you know, whatever, you know, and um, and then I take a meeting and do that. Sometimes it's a, my agent suggests to a producer, 
that they meet. You know what I mean? It, it's there's no way of knowing exactly how it happens, but um, but the critical where it all leads up to critically is that meeting with the director. And if we click at that point, and he doesn't have other choices that he likes better, bam, off we go. Yeah. A few weeks later, we're off making the movie. It's much more complicated than I thought it would be, Stuart. It's it's very much like the uh, a composer to a director as well. Um, you know, Hans Zimmer being attached to, like, Christopher Nolan at the hip. You know, you're right. I never thought yeah. – there's so much to it. Um, you know, The Piano, wonderful, wonderful movie. Your, your first major project, I think you would agree, a stunning yeah. movie with Holly Hunter. So I got thinking about two things when I was looking at your life and, and especially this movie. Um, the first of which, I mean, for your first project to be nominated for an Academy Award, I would think if you don't have the right temperament could lead you down the wrong path. And what I mean by that is, you know, I mean, to have not you, Stuart, but like anybody, I mean, that's just a huge honor in your, in your first project. And the second for your first project is that, you know, Holly Hunter doesn't say many words in this movie for those listening. And you almost have to do the talking with your camera work. So it's like it's that much more difficult and that much more impressive, Stuart. So I'm kind of giving you a double dose of, boy, does it, you had to go through a lot of emotions, I feel like, um, before, during, and after this movie. Well, well I mean, the, first, the you know, you could say, yes, it's challenging um, to make a movie where the main character doesn't speak. You're absolutely right. And Jane Campion, the director, you know, said to me very early on in our process, we'd, we'd already done a, a project before that together, Angel at My Table. Um, so we had a little bit of shorthand, but she said that, you know, the key thing about, one of the key things about this movie is that the, the Ada, Holly Hunter's character, doesn't speak and that we are essentially making a silent movie. So the camera is going to do a lot, you know, carry the load of, of storytelling, of narrative, which is certainly makes it more challenging, but is also an amazing gift for a cinematographer right. because, you know, really, okay, it's all about it's all about the image. It's not about people sitting around a table talking. Um, and so, you know, we, you know, Jane and myself and the other, you know, Andrew and the designer and various other key collaborators, you know, we worked very hard at producing the imagery that you see in the film. Uh, a lot of, you know, some of that came from Jane. She already had a strong sense of how she wanted to portray 19th century colonial New Zealand. Um, we developed the color palette from me going out and taking a lot of still photographs, color slides, in fact, ectochrome color slides, and playing with different, these plastic filters that I had, different colored filters and graduated filters. And we, and we sort of developed the palette of the forest, the beach, the, the, the clearing, which each had its own sort of color key. And, you know, that was built up during the preparation. Um, the the aftermath. Um, <laughs> I mean, we knew we'd made. We did know we'd made a good movie. Right. The, yeah, we we knew it was a good movie. There was no two ways about it. It was a great script. Um, we had a fantastic cast, and it all came together very well. But of course, you never know. 
how things are going to go. And I don't think I really understood how um, um, how amazing uh, the the experience was going to be until we were invited to the Cannes Film Festival. And Jane said, well, you know, the films at Cannes, do you want to come along? It'll be fun. And we went, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, coming out, coming out of the Grand Palais after the, the first screening there during the day and just the lines of paparazzi all calling out, not for me, of course, Jane, 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 you know. Mm. And we went, oh, my God. You know, I mean, having come from a very small country, I mean, New Zealand is a very small country and it. There's none of that razzmatazz, you know. Mm. Um, um, and, yeah, I mean, it was it was really a lot of fun. Um, and, I mean, I know what you're saying, like how it could all this go to your head. I guess it could. Because it's, it's, been, um, it's happened to others before, not necessarily cinematographers, but like actors. I mean, you see people, they kind of, they get this huge, these accolades early on. I mean, not that you're that type of person, but I mean, I would be over, I would be almost, but I guess you have a good mentality just talking to you now. I could, I could sense it. But for those with the wrong mentality, that could, I don't know. That's just, that's a lot to endure. Look, you and I, we've all seen it. <laughs> yeah. It's really true. And it can happen to anyone. It can happen to a cinematographer as easily as anyone else. Right. Uh, um, that that uh, they can get an over, should we say, overdeveloped sense of their own importance in the world. Yes, uh, yes. Anyone can. And, and yeah, and Hollywood, uh, you know, because then we went on to the Academy Awards and all of that as well. You know, it, it, it's definitely a minefield. Um I, yeah, I, I'm. I guess I'm fortunate. I don't have that kind of personality. <laughs> no, it's it was it's, 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 it probably should be. I probably should be a little bit more that way. No, it's, it was a hell of a debut, and you know, I, you know, I like to do this thing briefly with guests. Just pick three out of the filmography that of, of movies that really just affected my life that have had a huge impact on my life. You know, I was watching it for for the hundredth time this weekend. The first of which is Gifted in 2017. Had a budget of seven million for those listening. Um, almost yeah. made 50 million worldwide. Amazing shot in Georgia. There is a scene, Stuart, in this movie, and I, I told my wife, I said, I'm I'm dying to ask him this question. I I cannot. If somebody bet me a hundred dollars every time I watch it, listen, you cannot get emotional during this scene. I would lose every time. Um, it's the, it's a scene where the sun is going down. It's one of the best shots I've ever in the last ten years, certainly for me. The sun is going down, and Chris Evans is having a discussion with McKenna Grace about faith and about God. And they have the sun is to the point where the figures they look shadowy, you know, they're in the dark. I don't know. I mean, I, I that whole that whole scene, the music, the acting, the cinematography, everything about it is perfect. Movie making. I mean, it's it's perfect, Stuart. Is there a God? I don't know. Just tell me. I would if I could. But I don't know. Neither does anybody else. Roberta knows. No. Roberta has faith. That's a great thing to have. But faith's about what you think, feel, not what you know. What about Jesus? Love that guy. Do what he says. Uh, is he God? I don't know. I have an opinion, but that's my opinion. I could be wrong, so why would I screw up yours? Use your head. 
don't be afraid to believe in things either. Let's backtrack a little bit. Mark Webb, the director, um, is a very good director, and I think a little, maybe a little underrated, but he's he's made some very nice films. And uh, we, you know, I've done two. I had the privilege of working with him twice. He, like Chris Nolan, is a film guy. Does not want to shoot digital if he can avoid it. Mm. So gifted, even that was a, gifted, and the only living boy in New York, which was the other film. Both very low budget films, as you mentioned, but we managed to figure out how to do them on thirty five mil film. Mm. Um, and the scene on the beach with Chris and McKenna um, was something that that, um, that that Mark wanted to do. He figured we, you know, if we if we if we got there at the right, you know, if we could get there at the right time of the day and we knew where the sun was going to be and we could get set up, uh, because the, the sun is literally this big orange ball right behind them, right? That's beautiful. Uh, and, and we set up, you know, we found, figured out, calculated the angles, knew where the actors need to be, set up two cameras with extremely long lenses. I mean, I think one's a 1,200 and one's a 600 or 800. Very, very long telephoto lenses, which is why you get that sort of huge sun stacked up against the, the, the almost silhouetted figures. Um, but, yeah, it was literally Mark said, look, I'd, re- I'd like to do something like this. Can you figure out how to do it? And we did. And um, I, I agree. It's a lovely scene. The, the, only, the, the only time I've had as much success with the sun would have been the soccer scene in Walter Mitty when we got up very, very early one morning. You just got into my second question. My God, I swear. (laughs) Anyways, I'm sorry to interrupt you again. You just took my second question. That was just, yeah. I mean, if if somebody said to me, you know, what is a almost for, in my opinion, a perfect, and I know I sound over the top, but I, this is, I'm so passionate about this scene. I just, it is literally with the music, the script, the writing, the cinematography. It's it's the perfect scene, Stuart. I I don't want to gush too much here because I'll embarrass myself. But um. no, but 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 you're right. And you know, it was that there was some written dialogue, but also because we would we had to shoot the scene very quickly. Obviously, you ten minutes or so while the sun's just hanging above the horizon there. Um, so Chris and McKenna Grace essentially ad living a lot around. You know, the, the theme, I think, was of mortality and God. Right. All those things. Uh, and, and, but, you know, there was, there was definitely a written script, but they were also ad-libbing a lot on that. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is, it's a, it's one of those things. It's the, one of those scenes for us, for any filmmaker you, you do feel very proud of because they're hard to achieve. They're hard to, you know what I mean? They are fleeting moments. And Absolutely. You have to, and everything has to come 
together at that moment. And I have had moments in my career when they haven't, when I've tried to shoot a scene at dusk and laid very complicated plans with multiple cameras. And one of the actors has decided to not come out of their trailer and, you know, suddenly it's a night scene and you're not prepared for it. It's like, so they're very, they're very fragile and magical moments. And when they work, it's, yeah, it's joyful. And it's even more, it's even more impressive that you just told me that they ad-libbed it because the scene, you don't feel preached to about God, but then on the other hand, you don't know where they stand. And the fact that that was ad-lib makes it even more impressive. That's just beautiful. Um, the second thing I wanted to ask you about was, uh, the, one of the best of just a visually stunning movie, uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I really feel like we talked about underrated directors a bit. Uh, I feel like Ben Stiller you could put in that category to some degree. Um, just a beautiful film. And the, the when I read that you shot the entire movie in Iceland, because my favorite scene in this movie from the from a, from a perspective of a you know just looking at something beautiful and, and the acting sure um, is when Stiller and Penner in the mountains. Then they go, you know talking about the ghost cat, and then when they go into yeah. the soccer match, I, I can watch that scene that that ten minute span over and over. It, it's just I don't want to say flawless, but it's pretty darn close. Well, I mean, uh, we're going to well. I, I obviously the. World is set in Iceland. The New York part is set in New York, of course. But um, but the rest of the world, <laughs> it's like, it's that very American way of looking at things. Well, there's, there's the rest of the world. Um, the rest of the world we managed to do in Iceland. Uh, and so that covered for Afghanistan, which was those mountains, uh, the North Sea on the trawler, um, oh, Iceland. Amazing. Greenland, and I think that's everything. But that was all the place he hit on his journey. But, um, but yeah, that, the, the, the scene, which is supposedly in the Himalayas, we were, we shot up at the head of a glacier, uh, in the sort of central massif of Iceland. Um, had to bring all the crew in on snowmobiles. We had these huge tracked Russian tracked vehicles to move equipment in quite a logistic, um, event. But again, we uh, we got in there, shot for a day, got out, and then the 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 soccer scene is probably the only time in my life I've actually successfully shot Dawn, and that was you know again because Ben you know he knew that's how he wanted the scene to look. He had this idea that we were able to capture you know of the sun rising behind the the the, the whole event and. Uh, and uh, yeah, we were we were playing as if it was late afternoon, but but because of the way it laid out, it had to be early in the morning. That was the only time that the, the sun would be behind the mountains in the afternoon. So it meant getting everyone up at three in the morning and getting them out there and getting them you know in costume and in makeup and ready to go when the sun actually rose at five forty-five or six or whatever it, time it actually was. And again, shooting the scene out in a matter of minutes uh so carefully prepared and again you know as you said i think you're absolutely right that i don't know if ben is underrated as a director because he's directed some very good films but i think uh i mean i'm a big tropic thunder fan absolutely Um, yep but 
But I think that, that, that what distinguishes Walter Mitty is that it doesn't feel like a Ben Stiller comedy, whereas, mm. you know, Zoolander or, or you know, um, uh, what do they call it, Tropic Thunder, I mean, have, have some of those elements that you would expect to find in maybe not in Meet the Parents, but you, you know what I mean, a Ben Stiller comedy. Uh, Walter Mitty is a much more nuanced film, and I think... Um, I think a lot of people weren't expecting that. And in fact, I think a lot of people didn't see the film if they weren't already Ben Stiller fans. You know what I mean? Who, yeah. Who would have? My experience with people is that 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 they often caught the film later on TV or in a rerun. Uh, I went, oh my god, that film was so good. But I did, I never would have. You know, I wasn't going to go to it. Do you know what I mean? It absolutely, like, absolutely. Uh, and I think that was, you know, the, you know, if you want to, might call them the more sophisticated film people, you know, who who might be a bit snooty about a lowbrow comedy. Um, but of course, it, it totally isn't that, and it's uh, it's actually a very. I think Ben did an extraordinary job on that. You know, not only directing but also playing the lead actor in almost every scene. In the movie, right, right, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Seriously, that's... no, I, I, I completely agree, and, and I probably misspoke. I, I feel like the film is underappreciated because there's nothing that's not to like. The writing works really well. The cinematography, I love the the acting we talked about, and it's just the music, whether it's the score or the you know the vocals. I mean, everything works. Oh, I mean, the 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 the, uh, the uh, not. Not the, so much the film score, though it's good, but the the music that um, the source music that that they use in that film is fantastic. Mm. Just right on the nose. It's a great sound. It's a really good movie soundtrack album to have, by the way. If you don't, oh, I, I own. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And 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 you know, I'm going to say in the in very listenable, very. And, and the three, you know, I'm going to bring up um, uh, "Dirty Paws" was one of the songs I believe, but one of the. Um, all what these movies have in common is I went to the theater to see them. We talked the first one I brought up for those listening was Gifted. I definitely saw that at the theater. Uh, Secret yeah. Life of Walter Mitty. Just a, you know, and one of the things that before I leave this movie, you know, we talked about that scene. It's just the little things, Stuart, like the dust kicking up as they're playing soccer. Like I just love seeing those little those little things that really make it just a beautiful. Anyways, you you get what I'm saying. I, I just the, the last one I wanted to bring up to you, and I think this is really underrated. Saw this in the theater as well. Um, I loved the upside. Um, for those listening who have seen it, there is a scene where Aretha is in the car and Brian Cranston is with Kevin Hart. And from that moment to when they go hang gliding to when they go to see Nicole Kidman again, like I'm not trying to be over the top. It's just beautiful movie making. Yeah, no, it's, it's I, I'm very fond of that film too. I think Neil Berger is a very good filmmaker. Uh, and we had a great cast. I mean, as you said, you know, Brian and uh, Nicole and um, Kevin, uh, you know, all three of them, very unique, very different, and yet work together really, really well. Um, great set, an amazing set. That apartment that uh, Brian's character lived in was built on a stage in uh, Philadelphia. All beautiful architecture i mean it's beautiful design by by my friend mark friedberg um no really 
And, and again, I think maybe a slightly underrated film. It didn't seem to quite break through in, in ways we, we'd hoped. Um, but I, I think it's got a really good heart. I don't mean that, no pun intended. Um, but, um, and it's funny in a gentle way, and it's very human. Yeah, I, you know, it's very, very special film. And, and I have two last questions. You've given me so much of your time, and I, I can't tell you how much that means to me. But all three of these films, I think, Stuart, people that have seen all three can agree. I mean, we talked about this earlier, not to be repetitive, but these are movies you leave the theater happy as hell that you've seen them they're all uplifting and wonderful and they work on so many levels that's this is why i just absolutely i'm in love with cinema this is and you're a huge reason why that's great thank you um my last question to you is this when when you watch movies and um cinematographers some of your colleagues um is there is i know you admire you know many of them but is there one that stands out for you whether still alive or, or has passed um, and the second part of that is there a movie that you've seen recently that uh, the cinematography or the movie itself has really caught your eye you know I am a big fan of Roger Deakins I mean Sir Roger Deakins as we actually have to say now <laughs> um, and um, well deserved um, the, uh, Chris Menges who I had the opportunity to work with early in my career um, when I was gaffing a film he did in New Zealand before his Academy Awards, um, is a marvellous cinematographer with a beautiful touch. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting when you see the, some of the more recent work that's come through. The, the film that really moved me uh, in many ways, but in its photographic sense, was Honey Boy, which I think from last year or the mm. year before. Yep. Uh, and Natasha Breyer's cinematography, I think, is so important in that film and it's again such a light touch and a sort of there's a quirkiness to it without drawing attention to itself i I don't know i I went okay you know that's that's more that's you know photography for our age and uh you know so yeah no there's still a lot to love about what we do and uh yeah i mean i I completely agree and i feel like Honey Boy has been the. I've asked that question on a few occasions, and I feel like I've heard that people just. Are, and I've seen the movie, and I love it, but I feel like people are really enamored with this film for a lot of reasons, and all understandably so. But yeah, um, absolutely wonderful um, movie making. Um, one quick question before I let you go: Is there? And I know you probably don't look at things this way, but is there a particular scene? I mentioned a few for those listening, you know, um, along the way here in our interview, is there a scene that you're not that you gloat, but the one that you're especially proud of when you look back, obviously the future is very bright, but is there a scene looking back Stuart, where you're, you're, you're proud of, of what you did or it stands out amongst the rest is, does it work like that for you? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it but funnily enough, it's from a film that I don't think has ever had a release in the U.S. It was a film that we made in New Zealand um, called In My Father's Den, um, an you know, original screenplay by a young director. Uh, and it was very handmade, you know, relatively small crew made in the South Island of New Zealand. I went back from the U.S. to work on it um, just because I liked the project so much. And there was a morning, uh, there's a scene between two brothers uh, 
facing off each other down the, the barrel of a sawn-off shotgun, or not a sawn-off, a regular shotgun, actually, uh, and they're, like, standing facing each other, and it's down by this riverside in the early morning, and, and it's misty, and we start, and we, we, I was shooting it handheld, and we basically shot the whole four- to five-minute dialogue between these two men from, from you know, Essentially, from one side, and as we as we photographed it, this this that we were in a world of white, and as that four minutes of performance progressed, the mist burnt off and revealed the sunny landscape of river and willow trees and hills and mountains and blue skies. It's the most extraordinary thing I've ever you know to actually see that transformation happening in the background of a very intense dramatic scene was <laughs> quite magical. It, do, mm. it doesn't, it doesn't live in the movie as one piece, sadly, because, you know, there were, the director felt the need to put in some cuts and show different, you know, to compress a little bit, whatever, but, but you still get the, the, the sense of it, but watching it through the viewfinder, I was like, Oh my God, this is so cool! Yeah, and, and those are the hidden treasures, Stuart. That I like. I'm looking as you're speaking, and my father's done 2004 release. For those of you listening, this movie gets rave reviews. The first ten comments are through the roof. Like this should be with everything that we have access to. There's no such thing. I mean, this is 2004. It's not like it's from you know 1953. I mean, I just feel like this movie should be. I don't know. I would love to see this movie. I would, I would hope. I would highly recommend it. It's you know, it's a grown-up film. It's not, it's, it's fairly serious and not, you know, but I think it's a really great piece of work, really nice performances, again, from a very, what, the young actress whose name escapes me right now, but, uh, yeah, uh, and no, everyone involved, uh, a really fine piece of work. And you're right that, it, you know, when it was released, uh, it wasn't able to find a buyer uh, in the U.S., we ran it at the um, Toronto Film Festival, and it, to very good um, crowd, re- you know, very good crowd reviews, um, and and critical reviews, and but they just couldn't seem to sell it to a U.S. distributor, and uh, and it sort of languished for in that way. Yeah, but of course. Sure, it's now. I'm sure it's available now in is a streaming. Um, I'm sure it, is. it must be. It must right. be somewhere. Yeah, because almost everything is. Yeah, Thank God. Yeah, um, and I, I, yeah, I would actually recommend it to, to people as a as a really really nice, you know, thoughtful little film. Yeah, I, I promise you, I will see that by the by the weekend's end. Um, his name is right. his, name, his name. His name is. Drop me a line when when you do what you think of it, because I might be you know over hyping it, but um, I thought it was pretty solid. Well, Stuart, I, I I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast today. Just gracious with your time and your honesty and your and just I, I could listen to you talk forever. I really do appreciate it, and thank you for all you've done for cinema, and thank you for being a good human being and coming on the podcast today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. I have nothing easier to do than talk about yourself.
practice of rhythm and watch these days Where the lights don't move and the colors don't fade Leaves you empty with nothing but dreams In a world gone shallow, in a world gone mean Sometimes there's things a man cannot know The gears won't turn and the leaves won't grow There's no place to run and no gasoline Engine won't turn and the train won't leave Engines won't turn and the train won't leave Dawn 
come and open your eyes Look into the sun as a new day's rise